Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord today. Amen? The last time I stood behind this pulpit, there were fewer than 20 people in the room because we were in the height of the pandemic and you all were out in your living rooms or wherever you were worshiping from. And I had to imagine your shining faces, so I'm glad you're here today. It makes my task a lot easier. Will you pray with me? Word of God, speak through me and give us ears to hear. Amen. This morning I would like to introduce you to two of my favorite teachers. Some of you will know the first, most of you will know the second. Marge was a living legend the literature prof who taught three generations and nearly two dozen members of my family at a college very like Houghton. She had come there as an undergraduate in the 1940s, leaving only long enough to pursue her graduate work and then returning to teach for an astonishing 62 years. I have no such aspirations. <laughs> Even as a student, Marge was a trailblazer, the college's first woman to serve as president of the student body. She became a recognized authority on Nathaniel Hawthorne, but she could quote you chapter and verse in anything from T.S. Eliot to Mark Twain to Geoffrey Chaucer in the original Middle English, which she made us learn and recite too. She never married, and thus was able to pour herself deeply into her students' and colleagues' lives. What a gift. Her bright eyes and her certain way of lingering over her words were said to hold entire lecture halls enthralled when she really got going. Marge taught so many of us to read well and to love it. She held my cousin's feet to the fire through an agonizing semester of American Lit, and she guided my father-in-law through a 400-level seminar that he just needed for gen ed credit because it was the only one that fit his schedule. She was a towering presence. Imagine my surprise then when I finally got into one of her courses as a sophomore to discover that she was well into her 70s and barely five feet two inches tall. And she had to wear a microphone to be heard in the smallest of classrooms, which she sometimes forgot to turn off afterward, and you could hear her conversation with a student trailing down the hallway. And she had this strange idea of a final assignment, something called a card file, that I ended up doing in almost every one of the five classes I took with her. And she prayed the most penetratingly humble prayers I had ever known. And she pronounced it interesting. Something that still sticks with me. Marge was generous and humble in her power. She was nothing like I had thought she would be, and she was just what I needed. Though I didn't end up pursuing English literature in my own teaching, her ways of handling a text, her observation of an author's skill, her love of language, they still permeate and fuel my vocation as a scholar of scripture 
and a proclaimer of the word. She showed me the beauty of reading together. She also taught me to love a used bookstore, <laughs> which might mean that she has a lot to answer for in glory. <laughs> and now the second teacher. Here in the Galilee classroom that John describes, at the beginning of his longest chapter, this teacher was not what anyone expected either. If you'd like to follow along this morning, we're in John chapter 6, at the very beginning. Jesus had been healing and teaching for days, and Matthew tells us in his version of this story that at this point he was also mourning the death of his cousin, John the Baptist, beheaded by Herod. His disciples had just returned from their first mission, and they were eager to tell him all about it, and maybe to earn some credit for the size of these crowds following them all over the hills now. But instead of heading south to Jerusalem for Passover like they had done last year, Jesus crossed to the remote eastern side of the lake, climbed a hillside, and sat down to rest. And instead of sending everyone away to the villages for a break, Jesus welcomed the crowd to sit down. He seemed to think this multitude needed dinner and that the disciples could make those arrangements here in the wilderness. Instead of turning out to be suffering from heat stroke and delusion or a power trip, Jesus turned out an abundant meal from five little buns and a couple of sardines. And later, when everyone finally recognized this teacher's true stature, they wanted to put him in charge of the whole land, and he walked away. He was nothing like they thought he would be, and he was just what they needed. This must be one of the first gospel stories I learned. I am sure there was a flannel graph of this. I remember the little felt basket and putting the loaves and fishes into it. It is so familiar. It's the only sign that Jesus performed before his final entry into Jerusalem that is recorded in all four Gospels. But they all tell it slightly differently and for different purposes. Only John's version has this little boy with the lunch to share. But John doesn't paint Jesus as a compassionate shepherd like the other gospel writers do in this story. Instead, John seems to take delight in Jesus' power to discern the hearts and motives of everyone around him and to show him as the new Moses giving manna in the wilderness and as the new Elisha besting that prophet's miracle of multiplying loaves by a long mile. In fact, that little known story from the life of Elisha won't take very long, so let me read it to you. 2 Kings, chapter 4, just three verses, verses 42 and 44. There has been a famine in the land, and the prophet has just cleansed a pot of poisonous gourd stew. 
And after that, a man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with a few heads of new grain. Give it to the people to eat, Elisha said. How can I set this before a hundred men, his servant asked him. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat. For this is what the Lord says, they will eat and have some left over. Then he set it before them, and they ate and had some left over, according to the word of the Lord. Does any of that sound familiar to you? John goes to great lengths to make verbal connections as he tells the story from the Galilee hillside to the story from the prophet Elijah hundreds of years before. So Elisha fed a hundred with 20 loaves. Jesus fed 5,000 with five loaves. I'll let you do the math on that. He also fed a crowd of 4,000 later on using seven loaves and collecting seven baskets of leftovers. Goodness, Jesus, this is getting a little cliche, isn't it? When a tale is so familiar, it can be hard to hear well, and I often find a way into such a tale through the act of wondering. So will you wonder with me now? I wonder where I would have been on that day. Would I have been a disciple like Philip or Andrew, scrambling to find an answer to Jesus' impossible request? I was definitely that student who always had their hand up first. Eager to show up my brothers or even to chastise my Lord's idealism and naivete? 5,000 people, really, Lord? Or would I have been hiding among the rest of the 12, praying he did not make eye contact with me, and just trying to get some rest and quiet contemplation? Or would I have been in the crowd, trying to get close to Jesus for a healing touch or a precious word of, healing, of teaching? Or would I have been in the crowd, straining to hear with every heartbeat to catch him in a treasonous or heretical claim? Would I have been keeping up with the surging swarm of people carried along in the sea of sweaty bodies on that warming day in mid-spring? Or would I have been straggling along at the back of the throng, content to enjoy the break from my normal routine, but beginning to get worried about how remote this place was and pestered by now constant hunger pangs? Or would I be like Jesus, footsore and heartworn, needing some solitude, but also willing to upend everybody's hunger with a display of power and generosity? If I am honest, this miracle has sometimes seemed a little bit, I don't know, unnecessary to me. <laughs> like, how do 5,000 men and their families end up on a grassy plain with no food? Galilee isn't that big. We're talking about a tiny scale of geography here. The entire city of David would fit on the quad at Houghton College. 
Galilee is not a large region. And the barley harvest was just over, so if that little boy had some food, surely others did too. And I'm sorry, but who follows a rabbi for days on end without packing a cooler? And folks were beginning to migrate down to Jerusalem for Passover, so festival food was in preparation all over the land. Surely, between what the people had in their packs and what they could buy in the nearby villages and towns, this question of Jesus, where shall we buy bread, was all a bit of teacherly overkill, a bit of on-the-nose grandstanding at the worst possible moment of exhaustion. Come on, Jesus, just let the people go so we can rest. Except that a story told in every gospel must be worth another look. It might be nothing like we thought, and it might be exactly what we need for today. A couple of undercurrents in this story would have been plainly apparent to the people involved and to the first folks who told and retold it. The first undercurrent is the pervasive threat of hunger for everyone at almost every level of society. This is a semi-arid climate in a subsistence economy. A less than average rainfall one year could spell real food shortage for everyone. Two years in a row could be the beginning of a famine. Start looking for the word famine in your Bible. You'll see it everywhere. It was a constant and abiding threat. Barley was one of the first grains harvested in the year, so it was very welcome. And it was cheaper than wheat, but it was just as labor-intensive as any other grain. It's not like you could go to the market and buy ready-made loaves of bread. Even after the processed grain kernels were brought home, the women of every household spent an average of four hours a day grinding the grain into fine enough flour to finally be baked to say nothing of kneading it, waiting for it to rise, and then baking it. The work involved in all food production was immense for most families, meaning that many ancient people subsisted on only one large cooked meal a day. The crumbs of whatever food these crowds had originally packed were long gone. And even if the villages had anything extra to sell to them so close to Passover, they could never supply 5,000 men and their families. There was a very real threat brewing. A hungry crowd can become a hangry mob in just a few moments of fervor and heat-fueled desperation all they needed was a leader to rally them, and they could find themselves marching on Herod's palace. Having everyone sit down seems like a wise move on Jesus' part. A wise move indeed. Mark's version acknowledges the threat with the subtle detail that the crowd sat in 50s and 100s. That's an odd way of seating families, but it is the standard way of counting soldiers. Another dynamic in the air 
that day was the multi-layered and contested food laws in the first century Judaism. Out there on the hillside, there were no facilities available for the ceremonial washing of hands that many in the crowd would have required before a meal. Jesus announced no guarantee that the boys' fish and, uh, and bread were kosher to everyone's satisfaction. Maybe more distressingly, there was no good way to allow the more observant Jews in the crowd to eat in separation from the rest of them, because who knew everyone? Who could vouch for the absence of any ritual impurity in such a mass of humanity? To eat bread with an opponent in the Jewish culture wars was detestable for many in that crowd. The pharisaical families were expected to bump elbows with the great unwashed. Peasants and merchants and beggars and fisherfolk all eating side by side from the same five loaves and two fish. It was really unthinkable. Again, sitting down was probably a good idea. It really was the willingness of the individuals in the crowd to set aside their own habits and convictions that decided whether they got fed that day or not. This teacher was not what anyone expected, but he was just what they needed. He did not take advantage of their fears, their exhaustion, their hunger to stir them up into an army under his command. He did not invoke the names of their revered heroes of the faith, Moses and Elijah, Elisha, even as he performed the same acts that had proved God was with them in order to argue the crowd into praising him as God. He didn't even name Moses and Elijah. He didn't demand that anybody go wash in the lake and make sure they're caught up on their prayers and temple tithes and synagogue members in good standing before he gave them a loaf. In John's version of the story, he didn't even teach them all day first. He simply invited them to rest their bones on the new spring grass, which he had made sure was abundant in that place. He gave thanks for the grain that he had caused to grow, and he gave them as much to eat as they wanted. And then he started the cleanup and slipped away. I am so humbled by this Jesus. Again and again, like the disciples, I want to argue why something can't be done or lay out a plan for others, how they can take care of their own business. I want to defend the impropriety or infeasibility of ministering to such a crowd of needy folk. I want to sit in a quiet hollow with my friends and recover from my mission. I want to weed out the undeserving before I start serving anyone. But Jesus, with probably more than a modicum of mischievous pleasure, simply asks, what do we have to eat? knowing that it will be enough for everyone. He doesn't even point out my selfishness or my short-sightedness or my lack of faith. He just sets the table. I am so humbled by this Jesus. 
again and again, I want to distance myself from the crowd. It is smelly and hot, and you can't move very well in that crowd. I would rather leave the crowd altogether and drag Jesus to a quiet place where just he and I can get some time alone, but he keeps returning back to them. I would rather lead the crowd up where the air is fresh and the prestige is clear. But Jesus keeps going right into the middle of them all. I would want to filter the crowd to make sure no one in the crowd was forced to be around people who made them uncomfortable. But Jesus just chuckles under his breath and says, pass the bread. <laughs> I'm so humbled by this Jesus. Again and again, I want to ration the bread and fish to make sure there's enough to last and that everyone gets an equal share. But Jesus gave to all not as much as they needed, but as much as they wanted. That is so unpredictable. And really, Jesus, is that wise? I would want a backup plan to be ready when the bread ran out and half the crowd was still waiting so a riot didn't erupt. Instead of planning and counting and parceling out, Jesus gave thanks. This story is really delightfully ludicrous, you know. But thankfully, Jesus is not who we expect him to be. And he is just who we need. In John's version of this story, I am struck by the persistent misunderstanding of Jesus' own followers. This gives me pause. The crowds were following him in the first place because they saw him heal people. Over and over, Jesus touched the unclean, raised the dying back to life, and banished disease from bodies. No wonder that crowd hung on. But John's description makes it sound like they were more interested in the signs these things gave. Jesus was doing very real good to the very real bodies of multitudes of Judeans and Galileans in occupied territory under the thumb of Rome and its puppet King Herod. It was compassionate ministry in rebellion against the government and the religious elites who would be just as happy to let them die then and decrease the surplus population. But this crowd was searching for signs Here's the concerning thing about that. Someone who is always looking for a sign is in a frame of mind that sets oneself up as the arbiter of truth. A sign is deemed significant only if it aligns with one's own expectations and understanding. Signs are judged true only when they confirm one's own belief. Otherwise, they're dismissed as nonsense or, at very best, coincidence. Looking for signs, pursuing signs, as this crowd did, is inherently a self-affirming act. It is not easily an act of learning and submission to the truth. It leaves very little room for the invasion of God into one's life. In fact, it places one over God as the judge of his work. 
these dear people looking for more signs. But in that moment, Jesus does not condemn their misguided attentions or correct their theology. He fed them. Later, Jesus would address the error of demanding one more sign as proof of who he was. But for now, dinner is ready. After dinner then, more misunderstanding. Instead of taking that bread and fish as a blessed provision, the crowd saw it as a sign. He gave us food in the wilderness like Moses did, and Moses said that another prophet would come, you remember? Quoting here from Deuteronomy 18, the nations you will dispossess, listen to those who practice sorcery or divination, but as for you, the Lord your God has not permitted you to do so. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. And didn't another prophet, Elisha, also feed a bunch of people with just a few barley loaves? And here's Jesus feeding us with barley in the wilderness. It's him, it's him. And yes, Jesus was that prophet. The people were not wrong in their reading of the signs. But even if one understands a sign correctly, one might still respond to that sign incorrectly. And this time, boy, did that crowd get it wrong. The Jewish expectations surrounding that awaited prophet sent by God were completely mistaken. Jesus did not come to overthrow the empire, even after he had proven that he was invincible through the resurrection. Instead, Jesus insisted on overthrowing people's indignities, overthrowing our bondage to sin and disease, overthrowing our passionate pursuit of status and power. He was scandalous in his overthrow of everything that keeps us divided. Divided from ourself, divided from each other, divided from God. That is the definition of God's redeeming reconciliation. A person who can stand to be with herself, a person who can stand to be with others, a person who can stand before her God. And so, since the crowd did not understand what kind of king they had in their midst, he took them to task and drilled at home. No. He slipped away so as not to allow them the grave and costly errors of armed rebellion. Because thankfully, Jesus is not who we expect him to be, and it is just the one we need. More than just a good prophet, though he is that, Jesus goes beyond that expectation. Much more than Moses who set the law or Elisha who consulted with kings, Jesus fulfilled the law and established his own kingdom. Because he did not come into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world, Jesus invites all of us to take our place in the crowd. And he honors that decision with abundance, abundant provision, the food of salvation, the bread of life is a generous giver. More than just a teacher, Though he is that, Jesus goes beyond that expectation too. He could have planned and managed and taught the disciples how to plan and manage for such a gathering and to interpret its meaning. He could have poured 
out his wisdom and then sent everyone on their way. But because Jesus not only teaches wisdom, but knows the divine wisdom that governs the molecules of barley and fish and has dominion over them, he keeps them multiplying until the whole crowd has as much as we want, an infinite feast of provision and love. There is no such thing as a zero-sum game with Jesus. An only-so-much-to-go-around mentality is anathema to the gospel. There is always more to share when Jesus is our bread. Because the bread of life is not only generous, but powerful. He is more than just a king, though he is that. Jesus goes beyond that expectation, too. He could have rallied the crowd and marched on Jerusalem, sparing himself the pain of the cross and establishing his kingdom on earth in real time right then. But because he wants to save us not only from hunger, but from sin, he waited until his time had come. And now the risen Christ waits still for you and for me, because he does not want any to perish. He could have used his generosity to obligate the crowd to him. He could have used his power to subjugate them all. But the bread of life is humble and wants only followers who come in freedom so that we can love him freely, so that we can accept his generosity without shame, and so that we can experience his power without fear. He was nothing like I thought he would be, and he was just what I needed. Amen.